Welcome to Seniority Authority, the podcast where I track down experts to answer your questions on aging. I'm your host, Kathleen Toomey. Let's get smarter about growing older. Do you want to stay smart, funny, and cool even into your later years? Do you want your life and attitude to be different than the stereotypes and examples you see today? If so, stay tuned for this episode where you will laugh, nod your head in recognition, and wonder how the author crawled into your head. My guest today is Stephen Petro, an award-winning journalist and columnist for the Washington Post and USA Today, and a regular contributor to the New York Times and NPR. He is very well known for his essays on aging, health, and civility. And you may have heard his TED Talk, Three Ways to Practice Civility, which has over 2 million views. He's past president of NLGJA, the Association of LBGTQ Journalists. He has authored multiple books. And today we're discussing his latest book, which I love, called Stupid Things I Won't Do When I Get Old. Thanks to our show sponsor, The Riverwoods Group, Northern New England's largest family of nonprofit retirement communities, where active adults find community, purpose, and peace of mind. Visit riverwoodsgroup.org. Now let's hear from today's guest. Welcome to Seniority Authority, Stephen. I'm so glad to be with you today. Thank you. It's fantastic to to see you. And one thing that I think is remarkable about your book is it's very snarky for a self-professed civilist. But when you read it, the chapters are funny, heartfelt, and really familiar. It truly seems like you're writing this to help our boomer generation do things differently. Tell me what your inspiration was in writing this book. Sure. And now let me start just by defining the word civilist, since that is not very commonly used in our lexicon. It's, it's a pr- practitioner of civility. And what I love about it is, because that is, that is generally what I do, or I try to do, but according to the Oxford English Dictionary, it is obsolete. So I'm a, I'm a civilist who is, is obsolete, unfortunately. Oh, no! We look around our country and the world, there's a lot of work to be done there. But. Does the Oxford English Dictionary consider that the role of a civilist is no longer existent? Pretty much, yeah. Hmm. You know, they still do have the definitions of civility, but those have actually morphed a great deal from sort of the Middle Ages, which is when the phrase civilist was coined, because civility then meant thinking about the greater good, thinking about your community, your state, your country, your planet not necessarily manners and, and decorum and, and those sorts of things, or even some of the values that we hold. So I think if we could look beyond ourselves and look to our bigger communities, we would be back on the track, and then I would not be obsolete anymore. <laughs> well, I don't want you to be obsolete. But I take it as a, with a you know, badge of honor. But yes, you're right. People have joked with me that the book seems a little bit at odds with a lot of what I've been saying in my TED Talk and elsewhere, but I would say, Kathleen, that it is it is snark with love. And you know, the inspiration for the book was really, it came from my parents. It was about 13, 14 years ago now, and I was in my early 50s. 
and they were in their mid-70s, and they were getting older, and they were making, in this humble person's opinion, lots of mistakes, doing lots of stupid things. And I'm the firstborn, the one with a mouth, I'm the <laughs> one who's a writer, so I'm the one with a pen. <laughs> and I, uh, metaphorically, and I started like keeping this list of things I'm not going to do when I'm their age. And, you know, I'm not going to color my hair like, like my mom was doing because you know, she looked like flame retardant. <laughs> she loved it though. I'm not, you know, I'm not going to talk forever about my, my ailments and my diseases and so on because they come to find us. And so this list started to get longer and longer. And it was just called Things I Won't Do When I Get Older. It was published in the New York Times as an essay. It went viral. But what really surprised me, Kathleen, was that this was in 2017, 2018. I started getting these lists from other people. I got 200 lists from readers. Oh, my gosh. So I was like, because I felt like a little bit creepy, you know, that I was you know, keeping my secret list. So all these people are keeping their, their list from their parents and from their elder friends. And there was a lot of concurrence in what was there. And then there were a lot of, a lot of differences. But what I came to understand was that basically we were wanting to do better, to live smarter, to live longer, healthier, and happier than, than the previous generation, which I think all generations want, want to do. And so it's really not caught on, on anybody. It's a little bit of a manifesto for our generation Here's what we can do better so that we can live smarter and happier. And and I think it's perfectly timed. I would recommend this book to any of our listeners because we have the advantage of knowing that we are going to live longer than our parents because our parents did not, many of them didn't expect to live this long. So I don't think they gave it as much thought and we know just demographically with the advantage of modern medicine, we are going to be around longer. So it's a responsibility of ours to say, okay, how do we want to do things differently? You know, obviously we look at what our parents have done right, but also they teach us by what they're doing wrong. And it's just so beautifully written because it is so funny and it is so familiar. And I think a lot of people are going to see themselves as as I did in this book. And one of the things that I really stood out to me that I had never heard framed quite this way is your Adolf Huxley quote, the secret of genius is to carry the spirit of the child into old age, which means never losing your enthusiasm. And why does that happen? Why do so many people lose enthusiasm as they get older? You know, I think that part of, you know, part of what goes on is we have all of these negative depictions of what it means to be an elder. And, you know, if you're looking in, at media, you know, they, they kind of make fun of us. You know, we don't know how to use technology. We can't hear, we can't see, so, you know, so on and so forth. Sometimes we're completely absent from media. So it's as, as though we don't exist. Yes. And then, unfortunately, many of us, I have seen this in myself as well. We kind of take on these negative attributes of what it means to be older, you know, sort of this internalized ageism. And that is actually very harmful to, to our well-being, to our physical health, to our mental health. And there's this great researcher at Yale, Becca Levy, who has shown that if you think that being older is a negative, you may have seven and a half years less longevity, 
which is equivalent to have been like a lifelong smoker. So all of these things kind of, you know, pile up on us. And I think part of, you know, part of what I'm trying to do in this book is expose some of the decisions we make on a daily basis. They're not necessarily huge ones, but when you start to make better choices every day, hopefully you'll start to feel better. Hopefully you'll see more options as we go down the road. And we won't be thinking that it is necessarily a bad thing to, to be older. We'll see, we'll be, see the gratifying aspects, you know, wisdom, multi-generational elements, being able to travel, you know, hopefully having, hopefully having, you know, more income. Although, you know, these, these days are challenging for so many people. We have to change our perspective. I couldn't agree more. And I'm a huge fan of Becca Levy's work. She wrote the book called Breaking the Age Code. And as a researcher at Yale, as you said, she documents factually that your attitude towards yourself and how you age, if it's positive, it can, as you said, add seven and a half more years and save you thousands of dollars in medical care because you'll be out of the hospital earlier than someone who has a negative self, negative feeling about themselves because they're older. And we do have to police ourselves. I feel like I am a super enthusiastic person and I embrace my age. I can, I can vouch for that. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. But, but even I'm like, oh man, you know, that spin class was so hard. That was, you know, I'm really achy after that. And I wasn't like that, you know, or I'll say, you know, I put on three more pounds and it's really hard to take it off. And 10 years ago, I could take it off easily. So we have to stop all of that talk in ourselves. Well, a lot of it is in ourselves. And I I remember it, it was not this most recent birthday, but the birthday before that, some friends of mine who were my age, they gave me this birthday card. I usually have it with me, but I'm not in my usual house. And I remember it had like tiny print. So it was really hard to read. And then it's it was like, open the card and then there's like, did you love the, did you love listening to happy birthday? Well, it was actually not one of those music cards. So there was no sound. So it was basically implying I couldn't see and I couldn't hear. And that mm-hmm. was a joke from a contemporary. And that's, you know, sort of how we perpetuate it among ourselves. And, you know, one of the things that I came to notice and it really irks me is, you know, when it comes to racism or sexism or misogyny, we don't make jokes. But when it comes to age and ageism, it's fair, you know, it's fair game. And even, you know, that Saturday Night Live sketch from, sketch from several years ago. the Alexa Senior or Silver? Alexa Senior, which was, I thought, hilarious. Absolutely hysterical. And on the other hand, it really sort of bought into all of those stereotypes. You know, there's, you know, there's an app for it. Like, you know, we, we just natter on and on and on. Alexa will just say, Keep going, what, what, what? And, you know, keep you know, fostering that. So we have, to, we have to become aware of that. And I don't want anyone to come away thinking that I'm, I'm anti-humor because I, I am so, like, pro-humor in, in every way, and especially in this book, because it's hard to talk about, you know, getting older and vanity and maybe illness and, and disability without bringing in some humor because we're terrified of those topics in general. Of course they are. And I think that's what makes your book so delightful is you're laughing. I was laughing and nodding my head all along, you know, by myself late at night saying, yes, I, you know, pee when you have to, or when you have the opportunity to, don't wait till you need it. So first one is I won't color my hair, even if it were for Diane Sawyer. <laughs> but, uh, 
And about 20 years ago, I had co-hosted a benefit with Diane Sawyer. And she was maybe 60 at the time, or 55. And she was, you know, platinum and blotted. And, she said, and I said, Diane, you look so great. You know, what's your secret? And she said, well, anchors don't get older. They only get blonder. Oh, and, that's awesome. Uh, to a chapter about my misadventures in hair coloring. And I blame <laughs> Diane Sawyer for that. I've now run a podcast here, but I'm I'm I'm, I'm basically silver, and that's that's my silver. Um, that looks blonde to me, actually. I have a yellow light on, not by design. It's just so it's okay. My, I won't double space after period. So this this chapter became the most controversial of this whole book, and I never would have imagined. So you probably like me learned to type on a typewriter. Yes. We, you know, we had it just embedded in our DNA double space after a period. And that was the right thing to do on a typewriter. We don't need to do that on a computer or on a device. The spacing is different for our for our characters. So it marks us as a little bit out of date, but that chapter is really about the importance of embracing technology, evolving with technology, and not being frightened by it and hiding from it. And that just, you know, it was just amazing, like how people got upset about it and, and also saw some of their own fears and yeah, I find you know the pace of technology going faster and faster, and I do have to you know hold on to, to keep up. But we want to do that so we can stay in touch with each other, with our loved ones, with our grandchildren, so on and so forth. And just one other one is, you know, I I won't limit myself to friends my own age, and that's really about the importance of intergenerational friendships and how on both sides they can keep us engaged and creative and challenged. And I think that's really important as we as we move through these this chapter. It, it really is. And, and I agree with you in terms of the double spacing. I did learn that when I took my summer course in typing, you know, and not only the double spacing, but technology is moving faster than it ever has. And it is hard for us. It is hard for me to stay on top of it. And you just look at how quickly things have advanced and it's, easy to say, oh, well, that's just beyond me. I'm not going to do that. But it's important to keep trying and try new things and demystify the technology that's out there. I just got on TikTok, which is something that I had knew nothing about. And I did it to help grow the podcast. And it's made a huge impact because apparently there are more things than cat videos and recipes on TikTok. People are actually getting information on it. But I can see how quickly things are are moving. So you really need to jump in. And if you have intergenerational friendships, they can help you with that too. And, and I do want to say it's a two-way street so that the younger people, you know, I, I know when it comes to texting, like my nieces who are in their 20s, I don't think they even use words anymore. You know? <laughs> and I'm always like, oh my God, what is that? What is that? I even trying to like you know, phonetically create. You know, so I think, you know, we need to meet in the middle. Yeah. They could use some words sometimes. And, you know, and we can learn some of the basic emojis. Absolutely. What is an eggplant? Not really an eggplant. You know, there's, there's a whole separate language. We're not going to go there. We're not going to go there. But you're right. And I love that quote that they don't even use words because also my nieces and nephews who are 20s and 30s, they they don't listen to phone messages. Like you call them and there's no point in leaving a message because they won't. They'll just either call you back or text you. 
but it is it you know and this is where the advent of civility could help you know with just saying somebody reaches out to you reach back to them in the way that they reach out to you it's not just what is your dominant framework you have to flex to others exactly i have said that so many times that phone call deserves a phone call text a text and don't ever break up with anyone on text oh no (laughs) No matter how old or, or young you are because that apparently is it is a real thing, and that's just despicable. The other challenge for the younger generation is that because they are all on social media all the time, I think that people are reluctant to break up with people because it can't be like way back when, when you had a phone call and you got the actual phone in your house that seven other people were waiting to use, and and you hung up and you never saw that person again or you avoided them in high school. Here, they are constantly delivered up on your phone unless you block them. So it's it's harder for people to really make a break because they're omnipresent. But I do want to I do want to say, you know, it, many people are of our generation. We like to blame the younger people for this, that and the other thing. And that's not what we're talking about here. It's about coming together. It's about finding common ground. And, you know, to be perfectly honest, look at the world that we have created and that we are going to be leaving. They have every right to have you know, throwing a lot of barbs in, in our direction when it comes to fracturing society, climate change, so on and so forth. So let's not do the blame game. Oh yeah, yeah. I think that's as I think that's as outmoded as also you know the organ recital, which is oh this is bothering me and that's bothering me. You know you can't focus on what's wrong with you and your illness. You can't blame everything on the younger generation because we, you're right, we create a lot of this. And so Can I read you one paragraph? From your yes. Book? Yeah, I, I would be just as happy for you to just read for the next 45 minutes to tell you the no, truth because I love your writing. <laughs> you, know I, you didn't know I love talking to you, so that's not going to happen. <laughs> please, so, please. Uh, this, is my, this is my favorite paragraph in the book. Oh, good. I won't join the organ recital. Can happen anywhere at any gathering, anytime a few people of a certain age get together. First the fanfare, what's new with you? Then the overture, the high cholesterol, the pre-diabetes, and the bum knee. Before you know it, the music swells, and it's a full-blown concert of sciatica, angina, and replacement joints. Welcome to the front row of the worst musical review imaginable, yes, <laughs> an organ recital. <laughs> So this kind of goes back to what we were talking about a little bit earlier when when we're talking about our ailments and conditions, we're defining ourselves by our ailments and conditions. And, you know, I have cardiovascular disease, but I am not like a walking heart attack. I suffer from depression, but that's not who I am. That's, you know, that that's part of me. So we need to balance those things. I, I suggest that, you know, if we're going to talk about them, we keep it to sort of the length of one one cocktail and then and then move on to other topics. And, um, but, you know, sometimes it's easier to say things and write things than to do them. So I turned 65 last month. Yeah. Yay! So, you know, my big Medicare birthday. And I had postponed a variety of tests and so on. So they covered my Medicare. And so in July, I had an endoscopy. I had an ulcer. And I had an ultrasound of my thyroid, but I didn't have cancer. And I... I went to the periodontist and I need oral surgery. 
And so all of a sudden I'm like, I'm becoming one of these people who's defining himself by this multitude of conditions. I've got to get a grip on it and you know, not talk about it as, as much as I was. And so I, I want everyone to know, you know, there's a certain realism in here, but it's for our own good not to do that as much as sometimes we do. I like that one cocktail rule because I do think there is an acknowledgement that as you get older, things do wear down or, or, you know, it's harder. You spend more time on maintenance, like a car. You have to get things checked and you have to do more things. You may have to take more medications. It's not that you're sailing through getting older unscathed, but it is exactly what you said. How do we define ourselves? And do we define ourselves by our illness? And also a lot of the other trap people fall into define ourselves by what we used to do as opposed to who we are. So those are two great points. And you know, in our culture, we often conflate being older with illness. They're not the same thing. Exactly. I had cancer in my 20s. I was young. I was ill. We often think that just being older means that we're going to be sick. That's not the case. And we need to sort of break those two concepts apart. We need to take care of our health. We need to do those things. We also need to realize, you know, this stage in our life is a stage. It's a life stage like the others. And I actually love the fact that demographers now say old age in the United States starts sort of 71, 72 for men and for women, not at 60 or 65, which really the traditional bifurcations there. So we get a little bit, you know, some of us get a little bit more in midlife than when you go into young old age and, and older old age. But it's important to, to think about all that. And then you had just said something else, a second point that I wanted to respond to, but I forgot. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot what it was. It was that we can sometimes define ourselves by what we were. I was a teacher. I was in business. I led a construction crew. Not who we are right now. And I think that's part of the challenge and opportunity of getting to a point where you are no longer working, if you when if and when you get to that point, of defining yourself by who you are, not what you were, what were what you did. So there's Arthur Brooks, who's a great thinker and writer, has written about resume virtues and eulogy values. And so when we're in the workplace, we define ourselves by our job, by our job title, maybe by our income, by those external things. And as you get older, you know, you start to, you know, a little bit age out in, in the work community because younger people are coming in and so on and so forth. And if we hold ourselves and our own identities to those same types of, of, of labels, we start to fall short. And he argues we need to make this shift from that to eulogy values, which he describes uh, as the way you would want people to talk about you, you know, at your memorial service or funeral. It's not a downer type of thing, but it's, what kind of person were you? Were you generous? Were you kind? Did you spend time with the, you know, the kids in the community? You know, so on and so forth. And when we start to think about how we can contribute and engage that way, there's so much that we can do. And there's so much, there are so many rewarding aspects that we can get from that, that it, it kind of creates this new identity that can be enormously, if not more fulfilling than I made X thousands of dollars and I was this when I was mm -hmm. 40. 
And it's a matter of opening up our minds to saying, okay, I'm, I'm redefining myself in a different way. It's a challenge for sure, because we have to let go a little bit and, and leap onto something new. Which is always hard because change is scary. Change is scary. The change is growth. Exactly. Exactly. And if you don't change, you know, you die. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. But, but you have to, we're all changing. We can't avoid it. And I often say, change is going to find you. The next five years are not going to look like the last five years. They're going to be different. Some things are going to be good. Some things are going to be bad. But you have to be open to understanding that change and evolving is what part of makes you a human. Is is It's welcome the ability to be flexible about what happens. And staying put, a lot of people that I work with, I think conflate staying at home as if I stay home and I don't move, nothing is going to happen to me. Everything will stay the same. And change it comes to find you wherever you are. You can't hide from it. And I have a chapter in the book, which is about, it's about balance. That's something a lot of us talk about and the importance of, of balance. You know, physical balance previously was like work-life balance. And this chapter starts off with, I'm in a high-rise building in San Francisco, earthquake country, and you know, very specific codes. It's the Bank of America building, and an earthquake takes place. And I'm high up there, and all of a sudden, I see the building is swaying. And I'm- That's something you really want to be in. You don't want to be in San Francisco in a tall building that's swaying during an earthquake. Well, that's what I thought. But in fact, the, the way the codes are written now, they're meant to sway because- to stay in balance, you need to stay flexible. You need to be able to bend. And that was really the point of you know, this, this like terrifying fear. Then like a year later, I was in a yoga class and I'm trying to do this tree pose and it's about balance. And I'm like, so tight and rigid. And I, rigid and I kept going over and the teacher says, you know, loosen up, let go, bend your knee, kind of move into it and let it let sway with it, which is exactly the building metaphor. And then I was able to stay in balance because I wasn't trying to hold on in that, in that concrete and metaphoric way. So I think there's a lot for us to take from, from both of those examples, but be careful of, of earthquakes in the Bay Area. <laughs> but I, I love that metaphor. I love that metaphor. It's so true. And the older we get and the more we have experience, it can sometimes limit us. We can say, I know what is what to do in this situation and we freeze. We do only what we know and we have to stay flexible and sway and let the change go through us. If you're getting smarter, help us reach more minds. Leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends to follow us on social or subscribe to our newsletter at senioritiauthority.org. I love your rules, and I'm wondering what you think some of the easiest of your rules are to keep and what the harder ones are to keep. Well, so when I was writing the book, I thought, I'll come up with all these rules. I've done my work. I don't need to think about them again. You know, and then you know, as time went on, I realized, oh, the whole point of this was to to make a list, to hold myself accountable, you know, to, to make a pledge to do you know, 
these things as they came up. And so I, you know, the title is Stupid Things, and I have found myself over time doing many of the stupid things that I, you know, that I worried about with my parents. One of them being, I found myself last year, I was trying to get a book from the top bookshelf in my study. I didn't have the shoes on. I had one stocking foot on the chair and one on the desk. <laughs> and then I say to myself, this is exactly stupid thing I shouldn't be doing because as I had written, we need to make trade-offs for a little bit more future mobility and independence. Go get the darn stepladder and <laughs> in, it's in the closet. So, you know, I did that. So it's often some of the, you know, some of the smaller ones like that. I think it takes a certain amount of intentionality for, for many of the, you know, it was sort of a, a larger one was I won't worry about what I can't control. Mm, that's a hard one. It's a hard one. And, you know, many of us, especially, you know, if we're, if we're you know, sort of in this chapter and you know, we worry about finances, we worry about climate change, we worry about our health, we worry about our children. You know, it's so easy to like get ahead of ourselves. And um, what I've learned in this a little bit through the research, a little bit through meditation is you know, the importance of kind of just staying here where I am today. This is what I know. This is what I can do. This is what I can't do. And that, you know, kind of takes a little bit of changing of, of perspective as well and not going down roads that we're not going down yet. And, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, there'll be plenty of time you know, to, to visit some of those lands, but you know, we're not there yet. And so stay, stay here now. That's the hardest one for me. I just have to admit that is, I'm a big warrior, also the oldest, and carry a lot of responsibility and that's just, that's a difficult one for me, you know, whereas don't pass up the chance to pee is very easy <laughs> since I have a bladder like a teacup. So, you know, and the, and the other ones, you know, but I think that is hard to stay in the present moment. And I think one piece of advice I would give to all my listeners is to get this book. And to go through it and you're going to laugh and you're going to be very, you're going to feel your heart warming at, at the fact that you're not alone and you have the opportunity to be intentional about your future and how you think about yourself and how do you think about people around you. But I do think that's, that's one of the harder ones. And, and so many of the rules are, are super practical and like, you know, give her the trade-offs, go get that stepladder that's just, you know, 10 feet away in the closet or like, don't try and Tom Cruise it, you know, you know, right. sliding into the room in your socks when you could actually just climb up and get it. It's not a big or, trade-off. Or start to declutter, you know, before you get to a place where you can't and you've got house full, an apartment full, full of stuff that somebody else is going to have to, you know, help, help take apart. You know, it's a certain amount of consideration there, but it's also good for us. We don't generally need, you know, all that stuff that we, that we have. Yeah. I would hesitate to say that there's probably no one listening to this podcast that could not benefit from a decluttering session. It's a sweet book. It's called Swedish Death Clean. <laughs> Yes, the art of Swedish death cleaning. Yeah. Yes, I have. <laughs> and it sounds like a real downer, but it's not. And it's kind of a program starting in your 60s, you know, through through your 80s or wherever, where you, you sort of methodically and in that Scandinavian way, 
minim- minimalize everything. And, you know, basically, when, you know, when you get towards the end, you've got the things that are really heartfelt to you, you know, things that, that matter. And that's what you're surrounded by and not, you know, all these pairs of socks and, and books. I had trouble getting rid of books, but, you know, those sorts. Of- well, I recently moved to a smaller space and it was a true lesson. I did give away a thousand books. Um, yes, <laughs> that was, that was painful, but you know, I am a tried and true fan of the library and I don't have to own all the books that I read. In fact, I can't cause I can't store them anywhere and still have a bed and a, a little table to eat at. And my entire place would be books, but it is, I also think being, having a little bit less stuff does open our mind to other, to a bigger life because we're not so focused on what I can buy and what I can own. And I'm a, I'm a shopper at heart. I love to, to shop. Well, if everyone is listening, let me just say, I've done two calls with Kathleen. She is so fashionable. <laughs> I don't know what your closet looks like, but <laughs> meaning, it's a place I would like to visit. Yes, it is. <laughs> Yes. And that's why it's very hard for me. It's very hard for me not to buy things. You know, I love that. I love things, but I know it's not helping me always to accumulate. And so periodically I do go through my closet and I, I give a lot of stuff away. And that also makes you feel good because if you're giving something to someone else who could use it, then that's a, that feels better. And if you have to think a little bit more about bringing something into your home. Where am I going to put this? It gives you something, but thank you. Thank you for the fashionable comment. <laughs> so there's one other, there's one, one other rule that I have that I just want to bring up, which is don't tell your loved ones that you don't want to be a burden and then make all these decisions that make you a burden. And so that does come from my parents who are, they were independent. They were New Yorkers. And we don't want to be a burden to the three of you. Uh, well, would you consider, you know, continuing care community? Would you consider, you know, something else because you're living at the beach 100 miles away from the nearest one of us? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And, you know, we're determined to age in place. And they did age in place, but they were definitely a burden to us. And I don't mean that in a way that we didn't love them, but we had to manage crises from afar sometimes. It was the hiring of help, which we were fortunate to be able to do. People didn't show up. My dad would fall out. She couldn't handle it. So I think we all don't want to be burdens, but we also then need to make decisions that reflect that value. And so after going through through this with my parents, they passed about five years ago, I did sign up for continuing care community because I wanted to try to do a little bit better than them in that way. It was not an easy decision. I was 61 or 60. I was 60, I think. But feel comfortable with that and you know also comfortable that my nieces are not going to have to be on the you know front row of taking care of Uncle Stephen. That is so true. I, I I couldn't agree with you more. Number one, because my parents made the same decision to stay at home, not choose a continuing care retirement community. I know and, where you're living. I know where you're and, living. And, and I'm living with them now, managing their care, managing their Medications, taking them to doctors. And this is my plan. I'm a solo ager. 
I have no children, no partner right now, and I'm not going to rely on anyone to take care of me. I'm going to make a plan where I know who is going to be my caregiver so that my family and friends remain my family and friends. They don't become my caregiver. And that it is so easy to say, I'm not going to burden you, but then also say, I'm going to quote unquote, age in place. And there's another colleague of mine who talks about just saying that you're aging in place is not a plan. Unless you say, I'm aging in place and here's the caregiving agency I'm using. Here's a geriatric care manager that I'm hiring to manage this. Here's a hospital I'm going to if I need to. Here's my durable power attorney and all my paperwork. And here I have the resources to handle this. So many people say I'm aging in place because they think that is their way of planning ahead. And it's not, it's not a plan. It's really become a mantra of our generation. And, you know, there are all the things that you just mentioned. And then there are also the psychological ones. You know, if, if you are the remaining, the remaining one in a relationship and you're going to be aging in place alone, it's a challenge for many people. And, you know, we're not, we're not creatures that you know, do very well that way. So it, we need to think much more seriously about this and, and how we can live most fully for ourselves and for those that we care about. And I, I like the fact that your book does not shy away from that. We've been talking about how funny it is and it is humorous and it is familiar. And you break it into three different sections. Stupid things I won't do today. Stupid things I won't do tomorrow. And stupid things I won't do at the end. So your book covers the gamut from, you know, started, I think you said on your 50th birthday on what you won't do in your 50s, but then you look ahead and you project. And I think that's a, a failure of a lot of people who don't think ahead because they don't want to think about the end, even though there's no getting out of it. There will be an end. <laughs> I know, you know, there's no getting out of it. And it, I actually, I wrote that third part of the book about a year after the other two parts. And it was after my parents died. And I, I needed some time to sort of both grieve and reflect on, on what I had learned. And part of what I learned was while I thought they had, you know, thought they could have done better on a number of things, I also came to realize they probably did as good as they were able to considering the fears that they had and mm -hmm. uh, conversations that they had. But in those later years, sort of you know, planning for, they both had illnesses. One of the, one of the lessons that I, that I learned from my mom, she had, she had lung cancer and twice she said to me, you know, what do you think it would be like to die? Is, is it going to hurt when I pass? And twice I came back with, gee, mom, what would you like for dinner? I was unable to have that conversation. Yeah. So I wasn't, I wasn't, I wasn't at the place to accept that. But she, she asked the same question a third time. And then I realized I need to step in into this with her and, and have that conversation, which turned out to be a series of conversations that were probably among the most important that we had in our whole lives. And I was able to you know, explain to her a little bit how hospice would work and, and the care that would come with that, that she would have her loved ones around and no, it, it would not hurt. I could not speak to, you know, what the death experience, you know, would be like, but she definitely felt a sense of relief and we both felt that we had come closer. That's a hard conversation to have. Mm -hmm. and, 
just, I'm in a Facebook group with some friends now, and my friend has terminal pancreatic cancer. Oh, I'm sorry. And, you know, he's in hospice care, but the family is kind of not understanding or acknowledging where they are in this process. And so I think that adds just another level of complexity to living day by day. Some of us are better suited for it than not, but I think by practicing small conversations, going out of our comfort zone on some of these topics, help us get closer. And this notion of vulnerability, which is what I really learned with my mom, I've never been vulnerable with her, made for such a deep connection. What a gift to be able to have had that conversation with your mom. And I just think of, of how incredibly hard it is for people to talk about this. And it was wonderful that she opened that door to you. She, she opened that door to me. Yeah. And when a door opens, usually it's a good idea to step in. That's very moving. And there's one other chapter there that I, that I have a lot of feeling for. A friend of mine from college was diagnosed with brain cancer at around 55 and she had four kids and that's a terrible disease. She made sure to write letters to each of her kids, three or four letters to each one to be opened at various times so that they would have knowledge that their mother had been with them and thinking of them in her last months. And one of the letters is in the book from her son, Jerry. And it is written as though after the fact, is when he got it. And it was such a courageous and loving thing to do. And she was acknowledging that she wasn't going to be here physically, but that she would be here with him in other ways. And such courage and and such a gift to kids. Oh, yeah, It, it is. And only by understanding where you are in that space, can you then get to that courageous point where you are intentional about what you want to say. Yeah. And I think we're all scared about having this conversation. Oh, yeah. So, you know, stepping into them is not as scary once you you start. And there can be so many ways that we get closer with each other and and open our hearts. I don't want to, I don't really want to leave us on this note. Let's pivot somewhere else. Let's pivot. Let's pivot. And I am such a fan of the fact that you are joining a CCRC continuing care retirement community because that is a great model, in my opinion. This book has been tremendously successful. What do you hear from readers that have responded to you? What are the comments you've gotten from it? I've been so pleased and so surprised in a way that it has been as successful as it has been. And a lot of it's been word of mouth. And what I hear back is consistently, it helped us to have conversations that we might not have otherwise had between the generations. And it helped us to become more aware of some of the decisions that we make too frequently that harm us rather than enlarge our worlds. So sort of a little bit of raising of awareness, greater mindfulness of how we can continue to lead full and engaged lives, because that's, that's what all of us want. And, you know, and so is eating dinner at four 30, really the best thing for you, because then your body's going to want to go to sleep at eight and then it's going to sleep longer and you're not going to be doing as much exercise. Maybe not. Sure. Sometimes you want to save a couple of dollars, but think about, think about these things as you. Yeah, I think it is. It gives us the opportunity to 
retrain our brains and to be to be more positive about the future. And one final quote that I loved is the Jimmy Carter quote. We worry too much about something to live on and too little about something to live for. And you talk a lot about purpose. And what advice do you have for those people, those among us who are searching for that purpose over and above our what our work life has been? So that you know kind of goes back to what we were talking about, this shift in values from you know, what's my title to how do people understand me? It's a real um, sort of reconstituting of, of who we are and asking ourselves what matters to me, mm-hmm. uh, and then and then taking what we say and trying to make decisions, you know, daily, weekly, monthly that foster that. And you know, those are the conversations we can have with our families. You know, what matters to me? Family matters. Health matters. You know, politics matters. I mean, it, there's no right answer, but thinking about that question and then coming to some conclusions and then trying to live that way. So I think that gives us purpose. That gives us meaning. Exactly. And speaking of purpose, what is in your future plan? Oh, my crystal ball. Yeah. Well, I am working on a new book and it started um, a little about a month or two ago. And it's the top line topic is finding joy in challenging times. So, that uh, sounds have, very appropriate. <laughs> our fair share of challenging times you know, on every level. Yes. You know, and so I'm, I'm still sort of constructing the book, but part of it is a little bit memoir like, like this book, but then also, you know, here are some of the expected places we might find joy and then some of the surprising places and then some of the places we would not have thought to find joy. And I think my thesis argument is going to be that joy is always there there on the outside and it's there on the inside we have to find ways to stay open and be open to that and let it inhabit us and let us reach it but as i said it's still a work in progress oh cannot wait for that book that is i will you have to write it first you're okay now before i let you go we're doing this fast Fast Five Lightning Round, which I can't wait to hear your answers on. So we know you're a wonderful writer, very funny, very insightful guy. But tell us what your guilty pleasure is. My guilty pleasure is chocolate. Okay. (laughs) I can, once I start. No stopping. Okay, you get the pound and a half bricks at Trader Joe's. (laughs) Barf it down. (laughs) Okay, what's your favorite healthy practice? You've already mentioned yoga and meditation. What's yoga your favorite? And, and and swimming is a great joy of mine. Oh, awesome. What is guaranteed to make you laugh, Stephen? I laugh a lot. That's why I like you. you know, my family makes me laugh. My my friend people love to make fun of me and that <laughs> makes me laugh. <laughs> yeah, I get a lot of that too. I think you and I have been many of the same attributes, you know, eldest, maybe we like to be in control. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah. Easy to make fun of. I I love it. Yeah, yeah, we are are all there. We are big targets. Okay, the last book you loved. It is right here. It's called The Measure by Nikki Ehrlich. Oh, I do not. I'm going to write it down. Measure by Nikki Ehrlich, okay? The title comes from The Measure of a Life. 
And it's a novel. And the plot is everybody on the planet, one April day, receives a small wooden box. And in it is a string. Most people get a long string. Some people get a short string. It becomes clear that the length of this string is associated with the length of your life. And the world devolves into long string people and short string people. And the sort of metaphoric or metaphysical question that's posed is, you know, which is, which is better? Which is going to give you a, a better life? Whether you're going to live to 85 or not. And, and I'm not going to want to give away too much. But the world, you know, fractures so that the government doesn't want to support programs that, that support short string people because they're <laughs> dumb. Couples break up because this one's not going to be able to be, you know, a father for, you know, for the whole kid's life. But the main point is, it's not the length of your life. It's how you live your life, the richness and the depth that you find every day. So I found this book, The Measure, so incredibly moving and transformative in a way. Wow. Oh my gosh. Thank you. I have not read that. I'm putting it on my book list right now. I thought it was actually relevant to our conversation. It is. Yeah. Short. It's completely light and frothy. I know. I know. I know. Exactly. Wow. That is perfect. Okay. I know you are, you are right now, but what is your favorite escape? Being, so I'm in the mountains, but my favorite escape is actually being by the ocean. And I, I think there's, you know, there's a whole literature about sort of the blue mind and, and being close to water and water being a healing place. And that's always been the case for me. So any body of water. Yeah. Same here. I'm, I'm very water oriented. Why don't you were just at a lake? So. Yes. Yes, I was. Yes. That is fantastic. Well, Stephen, it has been wonderful, a real gift to have you on today. Thank you so much. All my listeners, the link to Stephen's book is in the show notes. Definitely pick it up. It will change how the way you think about aging. Thank you for having me. It has been a complete pleasure. I'm sorry that we're ending. Uh, me too. Me too. <laughs> Until, next time. Until next time, you have to go write your next book. I do. <laughs> Okay, that's our show for today. If you enjoyed it, please tell your friends about us so we can reach more minds. Give us a rating and review on Apple Podcast and send me your questions on aging. And until next time, enjoy the chance to get smarter about growing older. <laughs>